I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon, this podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Joe Byrne, broadcasting from Bern, Switzerland. And Mark Boyle, broadcasting from Surrey in the UK. And today we'll be talking about Alaska, America's 49th state. The name Alaska comes from the Aleut word Alieska, meaning great land, and it is a plentiful place in many respects. Rich in natural resources, Alaska has a longer coastline than the other 49 states combined, and it's the largest state in the US. It contains over 3 million lakes as well as Denali, North America's highest peak. About 500 miles separates Alaska from Washington state, its nearest neighbor, and it has a strong connection with Russia, who used to occupy and control the territory. you want to jump into the early days of Alaska? Sure. Um, So to go all the way back to uh, humans' uh, occupation and interaction with Alaska, you got to go back about uh, uh, 30,000 years when uh, there was less water in the sea and there was more land. And this led to a a territory known as, now known as Beringia, uh, which is what has given birth to the, the, the name today of the Bering Strait, the, the straits that separates uh, Alaska and Russia. At that time, there's a contiguous land bridge. And it was from Asia that humans came across this land bridge into the uh, northern and southern American continents. Uh, this migration is thought to have happened in three distinct waves. Um, 25 to 15,000 years ago was the first wave. And the uh, Asians who came across this land bridge in this period went on to become the, the Native uh, Americans or Native Indians or whatever your preferred moniker might be uh, in North and South America. So all of the indigenous tribes in South America came during, this, uh, came during this period and then went all the way down the North American continent into the South American continent. Then uh, from 14,000 years to 9,000 years ago, uh, other groups came, including some of the uh, native populations that lived in Alaska and, and currently live in Alaska today, and also the Navajo uh, and Apache uh, ancestors. And then uh, subsequent to that, in the last nine to 6,000 years, um, there was the descendants of the, or sorry, antecedents of the uh, Aleuts and also the Eskimos. And just a point about the term Eskimo, um, this is something I, I did not know. Uh, my assumption was that Inuit was the preferred term for uh, native populations living in, in the Arctic Circle and nearby. But seemingly in Alaska, Eskimo was the preferred term for some of those native groupings, including the uh, Yupik and Inupiat. They, the preferred term is, is Eskimo in that context. So please don't assume I'm just being a 
a, a no, no angry emails. Uh, we, we've thought about this. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll warrant plenty of angry not, emails. Not for this. Just maybe yeah. just not on this specific point. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was that was the start of humans interaction with, with the area. And then over thousands of years, there's a lot of archaeological uh, evidence of, of many different kinds of civilizations, some uh, having uh, whole towns, cities of tens of thousands of people, uh, largely existing off uh, uh, hunting and gathering, hunting in particular, because there's, there's a lot of uh, large uh, animals and uh, fisheries, marine mammals, shellfish, etc., that would provide sustenance. And obviously the, the conditions would be uh, quite difficult to, to farm in. Um, the conditions also are particularly uh, fantastic for uh, for preserving bodies. Uh, so there's actually been a lot of really amazing finds uh, archaeologically. Also, but part of this is related to the uh, practices of some of the, the the local populations of mummifying the remains of bodies. But as well as mummifying, there was also bodies buried in caves, uh, sarcophagi, etc. Uh, just one example. Uh, is a site called On Your Knees Cave, which Good was name. discovered in 1993. And yeah, it's a deadly name. Uh, and it's it's named this because of how you would have to um, get into the cave. You can only get into the cave by getting onto your knees. That's how tight it was. Or, originally, they were, I think, they, they, they had discovered this cave system and they were discovering remains of animals, uh, bears in particular, that had uh, used it for shelter. But then once they found that there were also human remains uh, in these caves, they had to actually stop excavating. Uh, and this is kind of why I'm mentioning this is because um, there was rights of local tribes to be respected that they, they did not want to be uh, potentially desecrating uh, a grave of an, an antecedent of a, a current tribe. So they, they had to stop uh, their activity completely and entered into a dialogue with the, the Tlingit uh, tribe, who were one of the main, uh, main groupings there. And over the next 12 years, they, uh, there was, they, they managed to agree a, a form of, of excavation and the Tlingit reburied these, uh, these dead. Uh, just mentioning the Tlingit, the other groupings, I've also mentioned the Nupiat and Yupik, who are regarded as Eskimo, but there's also the uh, Aleut, the Iyak, the Han Handa, Tsimchian and Athabaskan. Again, I understand if there's any angry good, emails good, good about pronunciation in that. Uh, and it's it's um, worth pointing out yeah. that as far as my reading has has shown me, the the southern part of Alaska, where the Tlingit and the Haida live, is reasonably temperate and you know rich in natural resources and food and forests and so on, which isn't the image of Alaska we largely have. So. Those people had cultures more like the Apache and Navajo, kind of the Indians we see in old westerns, than perhaps the Athabascans living in the the icy interior or the Eskimos living in the north have. So Alaska is a bit more diverse environmentally than maybe I initially thought, at least when I started researching this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's kind of reflected in the different traditions and the different even uh, languages of these groupings. I mean, m most of them are really defined by the, the commonness of their language, not necessarily by uh, any uh, maybe self-perception of, of being, of being a, a distinct grouping in this way. Um, 
Something that is quite common across the different groupings uh, is the form of their religious belief, um, which is generally regarded as shamanism. But if you look into it a little bit, it, it, it's actually very close to uh, what would have been uh, paganism, sort of uh, uh, communing with uh, animal spirits and nature-based spirits. It's uh, And then largely... Uh, I guess controlled uh, would be one way of looking at it uh, by a, a figure, either a shaman or in, in, in Celtic cultures, it would be a druid. Uh, and just a small anecdote, uh, I've actually uh, met somebody who was formerly uh, a, a shaman. They had since uh, converted to Christianity, but um, there there is... There it's got to be, di- uh, be discouraging when your shaman hangs up his... his job yeah i I, shaman boots Um, well uh it was a a she in fact um but the the thing that's really uh that really struck me was the the ability to command attention uh and to carry themselves in a certain way where you know that you have somebody who's trying to explain these these extraordinarily complex forces that your very existent relies existence relies upon and I think every culture has had these people who are able to inspire confidence and are able to um, interpret the, uh, uh, the the random world of fear and pain that we all exist in in a way that that comforts uh, comforts communities. And I would say similarly, a similar kind of role to what what a priest would play in in a you know many Western religions. Um, but yeah, it was a a definite uh, sense of confidence knowing wisdom uh, and and also the the role would extend to be that of a healer as well so there there would have been a certain cultural knowledge that would be passed down in terms of expertise with, uh, and, with and mark just just two um, other common things a lot of these societies have is most of them do matrilineal descent so who your mother is is important to which part of the hmm. tribe you are a member of and many of the the, the groupings particularly the athabascans and the Tlingit practice a, a, a practice called potlatch, um, which was actually it, it's common in in native uh, Canadian tribes as well, and was banned by both Canada and the U.S. government at various points. It's basically a a different approach to wealth, where a wealthy family are expected to give away everything they have to show how rich they are, uh, in a form of competitive altruism. So you have a big party and you give away all your big copper shields and, and blankets and um, foodstuffs in order to prove your status in society. And this was just incomprehensible to Western co- uh, colonists. And they tried to crack down on it as being an incompatible belief system. But it still persists to this day among some of these um, groupings where people are trying to keep their traditions alive. Although obviously with um, variation as, as time has moved on. Yeah, um, my uh, limited experience, uh, it was actually in, in northern Canada, not, not necessarily in Alaska, but it's, it's, uh, it's a similar situation where uh, hunters for the community uh, provide the, the, the meat that they, they hunt freely to the community, but that is not a very sustainable economic model. Um, and it's something that they, they try to keep that going and then have reverse altruism from the community back to the hunter through both uh, status 
and also uh, you know, material goods and, and help. But um, it's something that's increasingly difficult to maintain as some hunters prefer to try to sell on the meat. And then this is looked down a little bit by some in the community. Uh, generally, I guess that they, they just don't like to see the old the old way of doing things dying. And it is, you know, competitive altruism. That's a pretty nice society to have, you know, as we could if we could have something more of that in, in, in modern society, that would be. And, uh, and you wonder why it was thing. opposed by the uh, the authorities. Um, so at the point when Europeans first encounter Alaska, there were about 10,000 Tlingits no. and, uh, and Haida in kind of southeast Alaska around where Juneau is today, that region. Um, there are about 15,000 Aleuts on the Aleut Islands, which is a little archipelago stretching from Alaska across to Russia. And about 30,000 Eskimos on the north slope in the tundra regions along the north. Um, so that that's that was the state of play when uh, first contact with Europe is made. I know the answer might be pretty obvious, Joe, but uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how the Russians first came to be involved in Alaska. Uh, it's a good question. It, it was not quite by accident, but it was mostly because they wanted to understand what the east coast of Russia looked like. Um, so over the course of um, the 1500s, you start having Cossacks who were these military, um, military tribes quite loyal to the Tsars, they start conquering around the edges of Russia and expanding into Siberia and out to the east uh, as well as to the south and kind of forming buffer zones around the, the Russian Empire. And so these guys end up in uh, Kamchatka and, and various other parts of what is now eastern Russia. And there was an idea that maybe there was a land bridge between between Eurasia and America, and they wanted to find this. So they started scoping around the, the coastlines. And in um, 1648, one of these Cossacks called uh, Semyon Dezhnev, he was the first to navigate the what became called the Bering Strait later, and he was largely forgotten, which is why it isn't called the, uh, the Dezhnev Strait. Uh, and his... his Expedition was an absolute disaster and they lost most of the boats that went out uh, searching. Eventually, they they found themselves far in the northeast of Eurasia and were eventually rescued by an overland expedition. And they found that that was a much easier way to get there than sailing along the coast through the ice packs and so on. So um, you'd imagine it'd be like a brave guy to go. You know, these guys went off to somewhere in Eurasia. Let's uh, let's walk walk to Eurasia and see if we can find them. Well, it, was, it was the mouth of a river they ended up at, so I think people okay. were just were just charting that river as well separately. Sounds like this guy um, had a death wish, to be honest. Yeah. Like that's that's ballsiness and a reckless scale. And there are legends that some of the boats that got lost in that expedition ended up in Alaska and founded settlements, and they may be the first Russian settlements, but there's very little evidence that that's true. So if we skip on about. Uh, 50 years, 60 years, we get to 1725 when uh, Vitus Bering, who was a Danish explorer, I think, was chartered by the uh, the Tsar to explore this strait. And he charted it very well as part of a, an official expedition and found that, you know, there was no link between Eurasia and, and, and America. Um, Burning sin, which, you're all stupid. Uh, well, this is important to know. Like they could have been, <laughs> they just kept going further and further north. Uh, and then he, in his second uh, expedition, 
he crossed the Bering Strait. Um, and his second in command, the Cossack Mikhail Gozdev, is thought to have made first contact and first landfall in the Aleut Islands. Um, there's a story where like they, they sent two, a, a boat ashore and it didn't come back and they sent another boat ashore with explorers and it didn't come back. And then a, a, a boat of natives came out, shouted at the ship and then turned back and went back to the island and no one really knows what happened. That does not <laughs> sound promising. Well, they might have shouted, hey, we've got your guys, they're in, a, they're in our health spa. Like, I, you know, there was a language barrier. Um, it seems like it, these they, Russian they sailors... They almost certainly were- murdered... It, these Russian sailors sound kind of like like little bitches. They don't sound like the previous rescuers. These guys sound like, oh, no, they're shouting. Oh, okay, let's, let's panic and flee 4,000 miles back to Moscow. Let's not check yeah. in our guys or anything. Good Lord. Um, but anyway, so, so like some settlements were made by people like like Gozdev and, and Chikov. Um, but Bering himself actually ran out of supplies, decided to go back to Russia and was marooned on an island and uh, died, and everyone got everyone had scurvy. So um, that that's how the bearing like bearing died in the Bering Strait. Uh, so that's cool. So the the following couple of decades led to what's called a fur rush because there were lots of sea otters in in the the islands, the Aleut Islands, and in what is now becoming called Alaska uh, or Russian America. And um, there was a huge amount of high quality sea otter pelts being brought out and sold to the Chinese. And it, it all got very exciting for, for the, the entrepreneurs at the time. I'm excited. And uh, you you essentially get colonization. You get some um, intermarrying, some peaceful trade with the natives, some killing of the natives. 80% of the Aleut population died of smallpox and other old world diseases. So it wasn't a good time for them. Uh, yeah. But it was a good time for the uh, Shekhov Gol- Golkov Company, which was a, a fur a fur hunting company. Um, just, just can I, can I Sh- Shekhov, a little yeah. bit here, Joe? Just to, to give a little context, um, this was the norm. Uh, North America was essentially colonized on the basis of fur. Uh, particularly uh, Canada and large stretches of, of North America. And that whole industry was kind of the basis for uh, the Revenant, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it, it, was, it was the business in these uh, remote, hard-to-reach places because they had uh, plentiful... Uh, Furry animals. Uh, fur, fur-bearing animals, absolutely. So uh, it, originally it was, it was otter that was the main, uh, the main commodity. And it moved on to being uh, seal fur in, in decades in the future. But also to mention that you, you were saying how it was largely, uh, there weren't huge amounts of events. There's one maybe that is, is worth uh, worth highlighting. It's, it's called the Battle of Sitka, uh, which was uh, a conflict between some of these uh, Russian settlers and one of the local, uh, one of the local tribes. So the, the, the settlers were, the, it was the, uh, the head of the Russian-American company as the, the Sheikov Gogov company became known it was given a complete monopoly to export fur from alaska so they founded sitka as their headquarters so uh in 1802 there was an attack by one of the local tribes and I'm, I'm gonna say it like it's spelt kicks adi uh was the name of the tribe or something along those lines uh and they attacked uh, the russian settlement um 
this was a culmination of, of years of resentment that had built up uh, because the, you know, the Russians were exploiting the natural resources locally. They were intermarrying with local women, which the tribe didn't appreciate very much. Um, and it, it boiled over into this conflict in 1802. And over the subsequent two years, uh, the, the, the Kiksadi uh, created a fortification that they thought would survive a bombardment from Russian cannons, uh, Russian ships. And uh, what they, their idea was, was to have this fortification and to retreat to it if their town was ever attacked. Um, and the, Good plan. yeah, the, the, this is essentially how, how it went. They, they retreated back, uh, uh, back, to, back to this once their, their town was attacked two years later in 1804 when the Russians returned for uh, their intended unpleasant reprisal. Um, and they, they were actually quite successful in defending their position. They, they managed to, to repel the, uh, the attack for about four days. And then they, they, they ghosted, basically. The, the Russians eventually, after four days of uh, bombing and uh, sending envoys to, to negotiate surrender. Um, Classic combination. They, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, they, they turned up in the fort and it was empty. Everyone had gone, uh, and they they had, they basically uh, uh, retreated back to some of the the areas that they they used for for hunting food, and then uh, went further and further away. Um, I think uh, they they had they had a, a, a more strong defense planned, but had lost a huge amount of uh, gunpowder in a, a ill-fated attempt to retrieve it from one of their stockpiles, which which exploded and killed most of their their noblemen and uh, older uh, older tribesmen um, yeah so, so it's, it's again important important to be aware that like we're not talking about the traditional narrative of savages getting conquered by civilized people it was just two groups of people fighting over the same land um with different levels of technology but i mean equally valid rights to murder each other um we, we can all agree it's, it's, we all love murder Murder is well. The the, 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 these podcasts would be quite boring without it. Uh, two other little points I'd like to bring up from the Russian era is that the Spanish thought they had a right to this place because <laughs> I don't know if you remember from from like high school history that the Pope drew a line down the middle of the world and everything east of it was Portugal and everything west of it was Spain's. And that's why Brazil and the West African colonies were all Portuguese and the rest of South Africa was Spanish. They assumed that meant they also got all of the west of North America too. So you had Spanish sniffing around there, but you also had the British occupying British Columbia, which is now yeah. a Canadian province. So there, there was a lot of... The, the Russians were not unopposed in their, um, their presence there. And in order to spread their culture, Catherine the Great sent missionaries to, um, to these colonies. So she sent 10 monks to the, the Kodiak Island, where... Um, where there was a settlement and the leader of this group was a guy who's now a, a Russian Orthodox saint called, called Saint Herman, who was kind of a, um, a hermit type character. Joe, and he's, he's Joe, Joe, don't, don't, Herman don't, the hermit. don't pretend like we haven't all heard of Herman, the sainted Orthodox hermit. He, this, this, this guy really made his mark. He, he, he eventually retreated to Spruce Island where the natives loved him and bequeathed the island to the Russian Orthodox Church. So there's some dispute with the church in Alaska about whether the America should own that island now. 
So he he's kind of the, the, the saint of Alaska. They have another one. Their first bishop, uh, Bishop Innocent, is also a saint. And both of them were renowned <laughs> for looking after the natives and trying to stop the Russians getting drunk and beating them up and killing them. So um, Bishop Bishop Innocent, Saint Innocent. Uh, yeah, you, saint, you know saint you know he got up to some devious shit. <laughs> he's he's called Innocent. He ain't innocent. I think this uh, is probably a good time for us to take a break with the. Uh, introduction of Herman the Hermit and uh, Pope Innocent. So we'll be back just after this. So as we all know, at some point, the good old US of A becomes embroiled in this story. Uh, how did that happen, Joe? Uh... Again, complicatedly, um, the Crimean War is the main reason. So the fur business was going fine, but Alaska was pretty indefensible for the Russians. And in the Crimean War, they had had a few engagements with the British along their eastern coast, in, in uh, eastern Russia, along, along the Siberian coast. And that was serious trouble for them. And they thought if the English can get to our Pacific coast, what's to stop them just looking across the sea and taking our little province and making Canada bigger. So in order to frustrate British ambitions in the region, they decided that maybe selling to America be a good idea. America was in its manifest destiny phase, trying to fill the entire North American continent. Uh, they thought maybe putting a, that making this part of America would make British Columbia unstable, because as you said, there's only about 500 miles of coast there. So maybe that could have become an American state too. The Russians thought bolstering up the American power was a good idea. This was a long time ago. Uh, th- things have changed since. And oh, so, if only they'd known how things were going to change. Yeah. And so th- discussions were gone into. The Americans had a civil war to deal with, so things were delayed a little bit. Um, and in fact, the last shots of the American Civil War were shot by a, c- a Confederate ship, the Shenandoah, up in Alaskan waters that didn't believe that the war was over. So... Um, it was pretty isolated from from the uh, the main cut and thrust of things, but eventually um, it came into American control. Still very much isolated today, I suppose. I mean, obviously mm. not to the same degree, but it's kind of the story of Alaska. I, I, I can't remember the exact price, but it was good. Mark, do you? Yeah, yeah. So um, they had been trying for a while, I think about 10 or so years to sell Alaska and even though they were trying to reduce uh, uh, British ambitions, trying to curtail British ambitions, they did try to sell it to Britain as well. They just, they just really wanted the money. But they wanted uh, to sell it rather than have it robbed from them. That was. Oh yeah, but they they also uh, they also had recently done some emancipating of the serfs, uh, and were pretty pretty low on cash as a as a result of that. So they, it's expensive to emancipate serfs. They, they they really needed to get that money. Um, so yeah, they the the price they ended up selling for was a was seven point two million dollars, which was a slight uh, increase in what the the initial offer had been. Uh, that works out to two cents per acre, uh, which is a pretty good price in anybody's. That mind. is a steal. That is a steal. Like, even today, that's only a, maybe a hundred million for uh, a, a state. A little a little north of that, it's one hundred and twenty-two, maybe like one hundred and thirty, one hundred and forty now. Um, it's, it's good value, good value. So they sold it for... for and I mean, considering what they would go on to find there, that is an incredible deal. Well, on Wikipedia, there's this whole debate about whether it was it was worth the price uh, and the extra cost of administering such a huge state. This was one of the big uh, 
amounts of opposition to bringing in uh, Alaskan territory into American ownership that it'd be impossible to govern. Um, and it seems that there was a lot of uh, press that was against it, but the press hated the guy who was, who was central to the purchase. It was a William C. I'm not sure about that, Mark. I think this is one of those um, received wisdom things that, like, people think it was unpopular, but all of, like, all of the newspaper of the forty-eight major newspapers in in America at the time, I think only one or two oh, yeah. opposed this idea. Well, I, I, so it was it was reasonably popular at the time, and has kind of later become this myth that it was hated. I, I guess my my um, point is that a lot of what I read about this was just sort of indicated that it was something for people to grumble about, basically, saying that the mm-hmm. government had spent $7.2 million on a box of ice. I mean, then, even as now, for some people, they don't even, a lot of people don't realize that Alaska can get quite temperate in summertime, and, you know, there's a lot more yeah. to it than just a box of ice. I, I guess my point was that the only opposition came from the press, that the public were actually basically in favor, and the entire okay, idea yeah. was something as a distraction from the terrible... Uh, terrible aftermath of the Civil War. It was just basically seen as like, Jesus, Look, some, we're some good news. Again. Yeah. <laughs> Anything positive to be able to say. Um, Here's a big Alaska-shaped distraction. And it, at this, at this, it's worth pointing out at the height of Russian occupation of that colony, there were only ever 833 Russians in Alaska. That's very important to point out. I mean, can you imagine 800 people, yeah, there was nobody there. people trying to manage something yeah. manage or even defend a place as huge as Alaska and 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 when when the, when the Americans took over uh, when the Americans took over most of the Russians and Russian creoles like people who were the product of intermarrying left uh, and Alaska remained pretty much empty until uh, until they struck gold. gold gold i declare a gold so we're talking about it is the same era as the California gold rush and people were willing to root up their lives when they heard a rumour that there was gold somewhere. So there were people prospecting all over, all over Alaska and then the Klondike River in the Yukon region of Canada, just across the border, was discovered with gold and I think 60,000 people made their way up there like in the course of a, a couple of summers. Um, the mayor of Seattle just gave up on Seattle and, and went, you know, it's just madness, gold fever. Um, and like half half the people who went there just turned around again because they, they couldn't deal with the cold and the amount of supplies they had to carry. Uh, or they got there and all of the gold had been, a stake had been claimed. Can we agree so that it, these it, people were dopes? Is that is that fair to say? They were looking for... Um, they're looking for I mean, something. they were trying to find their fortune, really. Exactly. There's a great phrase um, I've heard about gold rushes. Uh, and I think it's it's used a lot in when people talk about businesses and, and stock markets and things like that. Is that when, when a gold rush happens, the only Go people the other way. No, the only people who get rich are the people who sell shovels. That's <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like I like that idea. That's fair. Um, so yeah, the, this was a whole era of excitement in the region. So just as, as the Klondike was c- quieting down, and I, I have it on good sources that the cartoon character Scrooge McDuck, who is the duck who famously swims around in pools of money. In, in cartoons <laughs> I watched as a kid. He made his money in the Klondike. I, so I love how he describes Scrooge McDuck as like a historical persona. <laughs> born in uh, born in 1920 to a farming family. Uh, uh, Scroofius uh, Mac, Mac Canard, as was his original name before he changed it for Hollywood reasons. Uh. <laughs> You're implying he isn't. Um, 
So as that was all drying up, they found at the other end of the Yukon River, all the way out in western Alaska, in Nome, there was a, a whole other gold field and the beaches are full of gold and people headed off that way. And then all the way up the river, they started finding gold. So it was a, it was a good time to be a guy looking for gold. It was also a good time to be a con man, as Soapy Smith found out. Uh, he, he was a con man from out of Denver and um, famous for his three-card Monty and his pee-in-a-cup games and selling soap to people that he claimed was wrapped in money, but it wasn't. And he died in a dramatic shootout in Juno Wharf um, and is now commemorated as a kind of a folk hero. So uh, he's worth reading up on, but uh, let's not I, spend too long I th- talking I think about- I just want to uh, chime in very slightly, it's a little bit jumping ahead, because we do want to talk about uh, um, Alaska being more incorporated into the, the United States. But just to say, I noticed uh, we were looking at famous people, and I've just noticed that Okay, so there there are famous people from Alaska, but they're largely in you know U.S. sports that don't really I don't understand and I refuse to acknowledge. Um, but uh, also, uh, you know, there's significant people within the culture in Alaska, you know, tribal leaders uh, and so on. However, there wasn't a lot of people that I recognized as Johnny mm-hmm. Foreigner, but the few people that I did recognize, and a little bit, it says a little bit about me as well. They were all kind of crummy or in some way showed how, uh, I guess, the the, the traffic of people from the the lower 48 towards Alaska has been not not great for Alaska. They've got a lot of deadbeats. It's through, you know, the kind of dum-dums that... uh, that drop their job and family when they hear that there's gold in a mountain thousands of miles away and don't pack a sweater and then have to immediately return with no feet. Um, but uh, just I, my, my list of famous Alaskans included Soapy Smith, con man. Yeah, he, he made a lot of money off the, the people who didn't pack a sweater. Uh, uh. But, but also in my list was Robert Stroud, a.k.a. the Birdman of Alcatraz. <laughs> and, and that... That story always seems to me to be like, you know, real scent. Look at this guy. He's a, he's a real killer. He's a real toughie. But he likes animals, so he can't be all bad. But he's also a murderous, psychopathic pimp. And that was... The, the, the reason he got into Alcatraz was he did some pretty awful stuff. Uh, and then there was two porn stars, Mia Rose and Chanel Preston. I've never heard of them. Anyway. Um, and, and then... A guy called, uh, oh, Wyatt Earp as well, the famous lawman uh, who was involved in the, the shoot at the OK Corral. He, he was in Alaska for a couple of years. And, and the only other person I found uh, was Artis the Spoon Man, who is a... I, I, di- I didn't click on that link when I was going through the list. I just, I, I don't want to know. You're missing out. Uh, he is a, a spoon artiste uh, who has done collaborations with Frank Zappa and Soundgarden. Uh, that that is that is the list. Kind of mad street people, Wyatt Earp, porn stars, and psychopathic murderous pimps. Uh, yeah. Anyway, right. so so Alaska trundles towards statehood. It's territory now for the next couple of decades. There's gold. There's oil starts coming up. Let go. Um, the, uh, the 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 Indians get U.S. citizenship in in the twenties. That was nice. Um, women get the vote in their legislative uh, council, which is is also nice. That's in, the, in 1912. Uh, they pick a flag designed by a, a schoolboy called Benny Benson. 
of mixed Aleut, Swedish, and Russian ancestry. Um, and it's just the the Big Dipper and the North Star on a blue field, and it's lovely. The state's anthem is that is a song describing why the flag's lovely, and I I, I like it. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about that. I hate it. I hate this flag. Um, harsh. And you, Benny Benson. My my impression on seeing the flag was that it looks just like a disjointed European Union flag, (laughs) which, if you don't know, is is a circle of of stars on a blue field. It just looks like a twelve year old tried to paint the European Union flag and failed miserably. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, sorry, Alaska. The, the the symbolism's nice. I mean, the, you know, the only thing you can see in Alaska is the North Star and the Big Dipper, you know. And so I, I, I think Dipper. it's cool. And I just I think it's sweet to have your state anthem be a description of your flag because it's not self-evident what it means. I think that's... I, I would say, though, you know. like, Alaska is insanely beautiful. And this this flag, as nice a flag as it might be, is way down the list of things that are, like bewilderingly beautiful in Alaska. Uh, they, they probably they probably could have talked about something more beautiful than their flag. Um, and then in the Depression era, the 30s, F. Franklin D. Roosevelt had this idea that he could move poor farmers who'd lost everything from the northern states up to Alaska and they'd be grand. And uh, I think they were, largely. But 300 families moved, big population boost for Alaska, and really until military bases started being built left, right and centre and infrastructure came with that. That was probably the biggest population injection the place got. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back to uh, the World Wars. So the next major part of Alaska's history is the Second World War, which really kind of kick-started a lot of the Alaska that we know today. Uh, so in 1943, I think, uh, Japan invades the Aleutian Islands, which is actually the only place, the only part of the uh, continental U.S. that Japan actually managed to invade. They took uh, Kiska and Atu Islands, uh, interned a lot of the villagers there, and it became sort of a point of pride for the U.S. to take back these islands from the Japanese. Which was the first battle on U.S. soil since the Civil War. Exactly, exactly. There, there was a, there's a piece of uh, American propaganda on the Wikipedia page about this, which shows, I guess, uh, the Americans trying to moderate the, the lack of uh, indignity that they are suffering from having the continental mainland invaded, which is trying to argue that by the Japanese attacking Alaska, they've made life difficult for themselves, and they've chosen to do this with the phrase, Alaska, death trap for the Jap. Uh, anyway. And it's a, a fairly, fairly racist uh, picture, I think, on, the, on that propaganda a, poster. I remember seeing a, it on Wikipedia. It's a large tutored wrath. A mousetrap. Yeah, and a mousetrap in the place of Alaska, mm. uh, which is... Uh, propaganda used uh, to be so simple. Less, yeah. Anyway. So uh, while this is going on, uh, while the while the war is is um, raging on, the U.S. government realizes that 
they don't really have a great way to supply and to defend Alaska. There's no real overland route that's yet been established. Uh, so just a couple of weeks after uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, which of course prompted the U.S. to enter the war, uh, a highway, the Alaska Highway, had been approved. Uh, it's a one colonel, one army colonel, called it the biggest and hardest job since the Panama Canal. Uh, and it would, yes. And having talked about Panama before, we know just how difficult that was. Uh, I have a quote here from a recruitment notice, which was asking people to join up, you know, trying to recruit men to the army in order to uh, achieve the building of this highway. And it says, Men hired for this job will be required to work and live under the most extreme conditions imaginable. Temperatures will range from 90 degrees above zero to 70 degrees below zero. Men will have to fight swamps, rivers, ice, and cold. Mosquitoes, flies, and gnats will not only be annoying, but will cause bodily harm. If you are not prepared to work under these and similar conditions, do not apply. And the application just flowed in, I'd say. Just... That is too much honesty. I mean, they, they had, did they not talk to the propaganda guy in the other room? <laughs> I guess not. So, um, yeah, the, the route was approved, um, sort of fast-tracked, I guess, through government. And it was uh, built over the course of about six months. Uh, which is amazingly fast, uh, considering you know the obstacles that they had had to overcome. I think three mountain ranges or something they had to <sighs> build this road through. Uh, they made progress at about eight miles a day, uh, and oh. the route itself is of over fifteen hundred miles long, and is today recognized as it's sort of uh, recognized in a lot of engineering. I don't know circles as like one of the one of the greatest feats of engineering in history. Um, yeah, it's a, there's a, a couple of documentaries about it on YouTube, which I'd, I'd recommend watching. Uh, it was turned over. It was sort of Canada gave their approval for the highway, even though they so were... So it, uh, it goes through Canada, does it? It does go through Canada, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so Canada gave their approval for the project pen, only if uh, the US uh, agreed to turn over kind of maintenance and, and that sure. that's the sort of thing. And they were allies at the time. Post-war, Yes. So they were like, uh, you know, you can build whatever through our territory, but we're going to take it, What you know, we're going to take responsibility for it after the war is finished. So that's, that is what happened. The U.S. forces launched a massive, massive offensive against uh, the Aleutian Islands. U.S. casualties were 4,000 and above, I think. And they did eventually expel the Japanese from Alaska, which, as I, as I mentioned before, was a, a point of pride for them. That was in 1943, I think, while uh, the building of the highway was still going on. They increased the military presence in Alaska and throughout, you know, throughout the West Coast significantly to deal with the Japanese threat. And that was, uh, you mentioned population booms earlier, Joe. That was that was one of the one of the big stimuli, I think, for increasing the the population mm-hmm. of Alaska. Like a lot of a lot of people that moved there in the 40s were military based people. So. Uh, that definitely helped with infrastructure. As I said, there, there was then a, a you know a road link between the forty eight states and Alaska. At this point, they were ready to become a state, which had been stalling because people didn't see the use of Alaska. Yeah, so they were a territory before that point, right? But not a not an official state. Yeah. So in nineteen fifty six, they adopted the constitution, and in sixty seven, they were declared the forty ninth state. Which is, is nice. That that's that's put an extra star on the flag. Yep. Uh, 
Yeah, 49 state. And, uh, you know, as as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, the largest and, you know, with some of the best natural resources in the U.S. So uh, it wasn't wasn't a bad idea to uh, adopt them as a state, I don't think. Just to mention, um, after after World War II, uh, it still retains a lot of significance for the U.S. military during the Cold War for its proximity to Russia. And they placed a lot of uh, missile uh, missile bases in Alaska with the intention of shooting down uh, Russian long-range bombers should, uh, should there be a nuclear attack. They wanted to be able to take out as many Russian bombers as possible. And then they... they consistently upgraded those missiles to deal with the increasing technology levels of the Russians. So it was really a Cold War there. Some levity. So something that I didn't actually oh, so realize about Alaska, this is quite interesting, I think. Uh, in 1964, on Good Friday, there was the uh, second most powerful uh, earthquake recorded in world history. And it's 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 quite interesting if you if you kind of look on Wikipedia at like tables of you know, the most the most powerful and the most deadly earthquakes. This is like, you know, the second most powerful, I think, behind one in uh, South America, Chile, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, whereas in terms of death toll, it's it's very low in terms of like major earthquakes. Uh, and that's because... One chicken? Like... Yeah, well, the, the population was so, uh, was so low and so sparsely um, populated, I guess. The place was so sparsely populated that it... I mean, I say only, it was only 139 people were killed. Now, obviously, that's a lot of people, but oh, wow. okay. for uh, an earth- earthquake... T- that- t- two, two points on the Richter scale, scale that's, that's pretty Yes. Good. So um, I think it was like a nine, 9.1 or something on the Richter scale. If I'm, uh, I think they've changed the name of the Richter scale recently, so it's not, it's not called the Richter scale anymore, but it measured a 9.4 whereas the mo- or 9.1, whereas the most powerful earthquake in South America that we've, yet, that we've since measured as... Um, a 9.4 so it's quite close and i think that earthquake uh killed over a thousand people so you know there's a uh, pretty big disparity there so oh it, it it is a place that's got tectonic activity going on i mean they have massive volcanoes too the, mo- the most perfect volcanic cone in the world like perfectly symmetrical volcanic cone is is up there uh, like you know this is a part of the world that's still continental plates bashing off each other and and continent formation is happening exactly so it's it's you know it's active it's definitely a very uh, geologically active place and I, I suppose that leads us on to uh, disco- the discovery of oil in 1968 which as we alluded to earlier is um you know a pretty massive deal for the state um black gold black gold indeed i'm all uh, shouted out it's it, that that was another massive sort of driver of uh, population increases and actually had a very interesting effect on uh, the tax, the way taxes were done in Alaska. Um, I was reading earlier that Alaska before uh, oil was discovered there was one of the most tax heavy states and really like sort of put the burden of um, taxation onto its citizens. And in the years after oil was discovered, it's actually become the most tax-free state in terms of like personal taxes because all of the money uh, generated by the state now comes from oil and from taxes paid by oil, oil corporations and shipping corporations and that sort of thing. I read some interesting, nice. uh, some interesting stuff about the economy. There's generally it's regarded as being a three-legged stool where one of the legs is oil, one of the legs is, is just normal economic, what have you, uh, services, et cetera, and manufacturing. And then another third is the government. 
that the government is so huge in 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 uh, Alaska that that it, it forms a massive amount of the employment. But another thing, another thing to mention is that uh, similar to some other uh, territories we've talked about, uh, Nauru in particular comes to mind. Uh, they set up a sovereign wealth fund in Alaska. They did, yes. And now, now I think manages something along the lines of uh, forty billion dollars. But the upshot of that is that they will pay you to live in Alaska. Uh, the most recent annual payment that goes out to, I'm not sure what the, the criteria are, but you know, adult citizens of working age. You have to have been a permanent resident for over a year and intending to stay for sort of longer, a longer period than that, I think is, is what I read online. But the, uh, the amount, it, it has gone down in recent years as the, uh, the oil stocks in Alaska are starting to reduce and the output is going down. But the amount is $2,000 a year, which is not, it's not bad. bad. That is not pretty bad. good. Yep. $2,000 for, just for living in Alaska. It's, uh, it's pretty nice. And there, there's something about the, um, the native peoples weren't too pleased about the oil or they were... Please, but did something happen with, with yeah, like well, lands? So there was it was a, found on native lands or something. So the Alaska Highway was built to sort of bring people up and you know push you know goods and services up into Alaska. And now, in the in 1968, they discover oil and they realize, oh, we have to get all the oil down now. So we have to build another thing to get the oil down uh, into the other 48 states uh, from Alaska. So that was another big uh, engineering project. That was uh, the Trans Alaska pipeline which cost eight billion dollars and uh it stretches over 800 miles and that was as you mentioned joe a, a lot a bone of contention for a lot of people including uh native alaskans who didn't want this pipeline built over their territory and thought it you know were raising environmental concerns and that sort of thing but also also just to mention uh th- there is another more more general issue uh involving the uh, uh the native populations in the land I think there, there was an act passed in the 70s or thereabouts uh, where the land claims of the native populations uh, were essentially addressed. They, they were paid off, basically. They were settled, they paid, yeah. I think a set, there was a set, a set amount, something like $45 uh, million. And then there was organizations set up to administer these funds, uh, some doing it quite well, some doing it less well. And I think this formed... Uh, something that, that is relevant is that they're not uh, native tribes in Alaska are not allowed to tax the economic activity on their land as I, I believe they might be able to in the 48 uh, the lower 48 and I think also uh, compared to Canada where I know they have a similar there was a similar process where they entered into negotiations with the native populations the the native populations in Canada are allowed to um, they they are able to extract fees from uh, miners and so on on their on on their land, whereas I don't think the same is true in Alaska. So the populations, you could say they they've gotten a bit of a raw deal. But they, they yeah they definitely the government did pay them off for the for for taking the land and these corporations that that run land interests on behalf of tribes seem to in some cases make a lot of money. And my understanding is that native people in Alaska tend not to live in reservations like the rest of the yes. US, but rather just in towns, in, in modern housing and nuclear families and all that kind of thing. And But there's a financial relationship to the ancestral lands through these corporations, which is an interesting, I suppose it's a much more recent 
um, shift towards being American than the rest of the country. Yeah. And as of 2010, I have here that uh, the pipeline has shipped almost 16 billion barrels. And I've got a, a quote here about uh, just how much money Alaska has made from the oil uh, from a, a guy called Terence Cole. He's an Alaska historian. It says, the wealth generated by the Prudhoe Bay and other fields on the North Slope since 1977 is worth more than all the fish ever caught, all the furs ever trapped, all the trees ever chopped down. Throw in all the copper, whalebone, natural gas, tin, silver, platinum, and anything else ever extracted from Alaska. The balance sheet of Alaskan history is simple. One Prudhoe Bay is worth more in real dollars than everything that has been dug out, cut down, caught, or killed in Alaska since the beginning of time. He's really hammering that point home. Yeah. Holy hell. And of course, t- t- tourism for hunting and fishing is popular. There's um, the oil is a big part of the economy. But unfortunately, we largely, as non-Americans, know Alaska for one recent famous person. We should we should mention her. Oh well, before that, I just want to mention uh, just one one blip, I guess, in the in the oil industry, mm. which was um, when the Exxon Valdez. Uh, ran aground in 1989 oh, yeah. and released 11 million gallons of oil into uh, the bay, which covered Whoa. over a thousand miles of the shoreline. Uh, and yeah, there was a $900 million settlement uh, by Exxon because of the major disruptions to tourism and the environment. That's a, that's a, a pretty big stain, I think, on the, on the history of the state. Um, quite, quite literally. Yes, physically uh, on Alaska. Yeah. Yes. Who, who, who'd have thought the oil industry could have any bad side exactly. effects? Exactly. But yeah, uh, going back to what you were mentioning, Joe, do you wanna, do you wanna illuminate the the listeners I on mean, who you're I, talking about? Like Sarah Palin. You know, she she ran for vice president of America in 2008, and just as a, as an international reputation for saying weird things. Um, the kind of I can see Russia from my house line, which I think might have actually been Tina Fey on Saturday Night Live mimicking her. But it became so hard to tell during that campaign what was satire and what was yeah, actually was almost a parody reality of that I think. Yeah, I think that kind of was the opinion most people had. Actually reading um, about like the, so, the, the current candidates now that are selecting uh, that you know will be selecting VPs, I guess, uh, quite soon. Guys, we're dating I, the podcast. We're dating the podcast. Don't do it. <laughs> well, in in terms of uh, the process of picking a VP uh, when you're running for president, I guess in general, uh, not going to specify for for which election, <laughs> in which, which year, whichever decade we might yeah, be recording whenever, in. Whenever you happen to be running for president, uh, somebody said it's that Jimmy Carter yeah. guy's got some fresh ideas. I like yeah. his style. <laughs> um, I, I read a very insightful comment that said that a VP usually doesn't actually sort of boost your ticket that much, but a VP historically can do a lot of damage. So you just basically don't want to pick yep. the wrong person. And that's exactly what John McCain did, I think, with Sarah Palin. So I think here we should we should let the listeners hear a clip of her endorsement of Donald Trump, which was like a piece of spectacular beat poetry and just her use of language. Can, can we can we roll that? Enjoy. You actually have to balance budgets in order to prioritize, to keep the main thing the main thing. And he knows the main thing. A president is to keep us safe economically and militarily. He knows the main thing, and he knows how to lead the charge. So troops, hang in there because help's on the way because he 
better than anyone. Isn't he known for being able to command fire? Okay, so I don't think we need to say any more about that. Uh, Mark, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Yes, 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 yes. So just a little on sports. Uh, there's a few different events, uh, particularly to Alaska. There is the World Eskimo Indian Olympics, uh, which is an annual event. It happens in Alaska. And I just wanted to read out some of the uh, some of the events because they just sound super, super cool. Okay, so there's the toe kick, the arm pull, the bench reach, the blanket toss, the Eskimo stick pull, and the Indian stick pull. Important distinction. The kneel jump, Alaskan high kick, one hand reach, one foot high kick and two foot high kick, drop the bomb, Ear pull, ear weight, four man carry, knuckle hop, (laughs) grease pole walk, seal skinning, (laughs) muk tuck eating. And just on those last two, I have in fact eaten muk tuck, which is uh, whale skin. It is is, uh, hard to describe it as food. It is. Does it merit being a competition? Yes. Oh God, yes. So it's, it's (laughs) you cannot cut through it with human teeth. That is how I would describe it. You, you kind of, you, you need to cut it up previously and you kind of chew on it. And it does actually have a, like a strangely nice taste to it. Uh, and then you just got to swallow it whole because you ain't breaking that down. Uh, so, yeah. Most of those sports sounded quite crazy and violent. Is there a grease pole climb or a grease pole walk? The grease pole walk. Uh, grease pole yeah, walk. Yeah, a, lo- a lot of these. Wonderful. Yeah. I, I'm 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 nodding the whole time I'm saying this because I'm just really excited um, f- about all find, these things. Find some find some videos for the blog, Mark. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the one other sporting event that you have in Alaska every year is the Editta Rod um, dog sled race, which is a trail from Anchorage up to uh, I think Nome in, in Western Alaska, where where people sled for for days and days and days and days with with sleds pulled by huskies and and other dogs. And this is where the mushing comes into. You ever heard someone shout "mush" at a dog? That's that's mush, all. Mush. It's all Alaskan dog sledding, and this is a really big deal if you're into dog sledding, um, and it's a family affair where people will inherit the right to run in it. It sounds like a mental. World Cup of dog, dog sledding. It's it? it's top notch dog sledding, and it sounds really exciting. Uh, but they have to keep moving to start point north because um, there's not enough snow anymore in most places. Um, Thanks for bumming which, us out, Joe. You know, climate <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, okay. All right. I think that's an appropriate point to uh, wrap it up for this week. Um, you can find more of our episodes on 80dayspodcast.com or on wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, you can also find our show notes there on our website. Uh, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter under 80 Days Podcast. Uh, if you like the show, we'd really, really appreciate it if you could go to iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, that is the number one thing that you can do right now to support the show. Uh, we put All of us put a lot of effort into the, you know, making the show every week, and that's the best thing that you can do to support us if you like the show. So, um, yeah. Joe, where can people find you on the internet? They can find me on timetoburn.com, or burn is spelt like the Irish surname. And Mark? Um, I am at MarkBoyle86 on Twitter. And I also write a blog under the name The Toner of Leak. Uh, it's on WordPress. I haven't paid for, for my own domain name yet. So it's t- Toner of Leak, uh, WordPress. It'll, it'll come up. You can find me at the Luke J. Kelly on Twitter and at LukeJKelly.com. 
Uh, that's our episode for this week. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Thank you. Alaska Fund uh, permanent settlement, or what's it called? Cash uh, money. Cash money bucket. Big old bucket of money.